following message was given by Shelby Murphy on Sunday, August 25th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. My name is Shelby. Uh, it's good to be with you here. We are at the tail end of our summer psalm series, or somebody keeps telling me, summer psalms with Shelby. We like um, uh, alliteration around here. But this will be my last time with you uh, this morning, so it's been great to be here the past number of weeks. But let's open up to Psalm 103. Uh, we're going to be there, and then we'll jump uh, into Exodus 34 here in a little bit. Uh, the summer after my second year in college, uh, I worked as a camp counselor at a very ritzy and a very expensive summer camp for, uh, for kids. Uh, the kids I was over in my session were there for a full month. So you can imagine uh, how much uh, dough... Uh, parents were shelling out uh, for this camp. Um, I was in charge of a bunk full of 20 10-year-old boys, uh, and one of the habits I got into pretty early on was just simply waking up early to sit outside of our cabin. Two reasons, just to simply enjoy some quiet, uh, just a simple moment, a moment to myself. Uh, so you, you have to um, imagine this. Um, all the boys' cabins, from the 8-year-olds all the way up to the 16-year-olds, all sat in this sort of horseshoe um, a configuration. So when I would sit outside our bunk, I could basically see every cabin. Well, about a week after doing this, I was sitting outside early one morning. It was probably about between 6 and 6.30 sometime. Uh, and I watched two of the counselors for the 14-year-old boy sprinting um, across the lawn, heading back to their cabin. These counselors were dressed head to toe in camo gear and, and, and face paint. And when they reached the door to their bunk, they pulled a string of firecrackers out of their pockets, lit them on fire, tossed them into that, into that cabin. What proceeded was a series of loud explosions uh, going off in said cabin, uh, followed by the counselors running in and yelling at all the boys to get dressed and head outside and, and um, uh, line up. Um, so by this time, most of the rest of the camp was um, uh, awake and watching this commotion um, uh, unfold. Um, and at the same time, they were filling me in on what I was actually seeing, what was actually going on. Um, apparently at this age, these boys went through a sort of boot camp hazing sort of thing where they got to spend a few days camping um, uh, away from the cabins and doing sort of these crazy obstacle courses and other sort of fun outdoor activities. And this was just simply the beginning of that sort of boot camp period where they sort of called them out. Um, you know, as people were explaining this to me, these poor boys were just stumbling out of this cabin in all manners of um, uh, undress. Um, you know, they had just been rudely, rudely awakened by these explosions going off in their concrete, <laughs> concrete bunk. Um, you know, some were just simply just wide-eyed and just <gasps> breathing heavy. Um, others were just rubbing their eyes, had no idea where they were. Uh, they were quickly trying to get pants on, shirts on, and just stumbling and falling all over the place. It was actually really funny. That um, They had no idea what was going on. They, they could barely walk. They had all sort of forgotten how to put clothes on in this moment. And they were simply just looking around with, with weird looks as their brains were trying to catch up with their bodies. You know, you can almost feel now just how discombobulating that would be um, if, if you were in their shoes. Um, sometimes in moments of crisis, 
like that, you absolutely lose your mind. You forget things that you actually know are true. You start to question um, uh, everything, basic stuff like how to walk, how to put pants on, um, or just simply knowing your right from your left. Um, things that aren't that hard, but in those moments of crisis, you, you lose your bearing so much that you begin to question things that, that you were once sure of. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann calls this feeling disorientation. And he uses this term whenever he's talking about a number of the Psalms. Psalms where, where the psalmist reflects a kind of disorientation in life where you don't even know what's true anymore. What's north? What's up? What's down? What's right? What's wrong? Where do I go from here? Now, when you read Psalm 103, it doesn't seem like it should be a psalm of disorientation. And in fact, it, it's not. It's, it's a hymn of praise. It's what Brueggemann would call a, a psalm of orientation. It's a psalm that helps write the course when you are disoriented, whenever you encounter these moments of crisis and you forget who and whose you are. And we said early on in this series that, that the Psalms are divided up in, into five books or, or sections meant to mirror the first five books of the Bible, sometimes referred to as the Torah. Well, Psalm 103 sits right in the middle of book four. And, and, and many scholars believe that one of the consistent themes throughout all of the Psalms in book four is this idea of coping with loss. Um, that's why you hear a lot about Moses. That's why you hear a lot about the Exodus in these Psalms. It's about a people just trying to remember who they are in a crisis, trying to remember their identity, which leads scholars to believe that even though this text was probably penned by David in his latter years, it was more than likely sung and compiled during Israel's exile in, in Babylon. So Psalm 103 is a prayer. It's a song that you sing whenever you're in exile. Now, exile for the people of Judah in the Old Testament meant they were removed from their land. They lost it. The Babylonians carried them away to Babylon as prisoners. They, they lost their temple. They didn't have a, a king anymore. And Psalm 103 anticipates this feeling of loss. And it says, I know you're in exile, but I want to give you a song to sing, a prayer to pray. Because you see, the psalmist knows that in our darkest moments, whenever we're in crisis, whenever we're disoriented, whenever doubt begins to creep in, questions surface in our noodles. Questions like, what is God really like? What is God really like? Is he good? Is he really in control? Or is God just some mad scientist who let the world get away from him? Questions like, what does God really think of me? In my own moments of disorientation, what does God really think about me? So these are the two questions that we're going to use to sort of frame our look at Psalm 103 today. What is God really like? What does God really think of me. And what Psalm 103 encourages us to do in these moments is to remind ourselves of the big truths um, uh, about God, to remind ourselves 
of what God is really like, to remember what God really thinks um, uh, about us, because it's in these moments that we all begin to question basic things. We're, we're so quick to, to point to our Sunday school answers of, yes, I know, Jesus loves me. But in moments of crisis, again, you question everything. Does he really love me? What is God actually like? What does he really think about me? And that's what this song, this prayer from Psalm 103 wants to remind us of today. Of today. It wants to remind us just what a great salvation we have. Listen to um, uh, Eugene Peterson here. What God has done for us far exceeds anything we have done for or against him. The summary word for this excessive, undeserved, unexpected act by God is salvation. And this is him talking about Psalm 103 here. There's more to do than recognize the sheer fact of salvation and witness to it. There are unnumbered details of grace, of mercy, of blessing to be appreciated and savored. So today we're going to savor this psalm together as we walk through it. We're going to take seriously actually the main charge here in verse 2 to forget not all of his benefits. And we'll do our best to number the details of grace, mercy, and blessing outlined in this psalm. So let me pray for us as we prepare to dive in, into God's Word today. Father, we ask that, that as we read and we hear your Word today, that you would speak to us. That you would open up our hearts to be able to see you more clearly today and to know you. Help us to savor your words to us today. Savor what a great salvation we have. Give us the grace today to be changed into your image so our lives come to resemble yours more and more. We pray these things in Christ's name. Everyone said. Psalm 103 opens with a very clear call. It actually opens with a, with a slap to the face. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Now we've run across this word a, a few times this summer. But what does it mean to bless? Think about whenever you bless somebody. Whenever we bless someone, we are affirming them. We are delighting in them. At the same time, we're also seeking their delight and seeking their fulfillment. We bless someone when we seek to give them the deepest desires of their hearts. So now apply that to this verse. So to bless the Lord means to offer a very intimate, a very personal praise to God. It means to identify those things that he most desires and those things that would most glorify him. It means to long for his joy and glory and to give him things that accord with this joy and glory. I've gone all summer without quoting Tim Keller. Well, that ends today. I think I've reached the, I've reached the um, legal limit to where I, can't, I have to quote him now. So here's Tim Keller talking about Psalm 103 and this idea of blessing God. The idea of blessing God seems to reverse our normal understanding of the word. We know that God blesses us by bringing us joy and deep fulfillment. Obviously, God's peace and fulfillment are not things we have the power to bestow on him as he can on us. Yet the call to bless God points to a wonderful 
mystery. He has tied his heart to us voluntarily so that now our submission to and enjoyment of his glory does bless him and bring him joy. In summary, to bless God is to give him joy by enjoying and rejoicing in him. We give joy to him by taking joy in him. To bless the Lord simply means giving joy to God by taking joy in God. That's why it says here, let all that is within me bless his holy name. Because this involves all of our heart, all our soul, all our strength, all our affections, all our thoughts, all of our actions. And what's the reason we're being encouraged to do this from from the outset of this psalm? It's because of this phrase at the end of verse 2. This phrase that carries some, actually some pretty negative negative connotations if you think about it. Verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and what? Forget not all his benefits. Insert another sermon on what a selfish, forgetful people we are. Do we really need another reminder of this? Forget not all his benefits. What's being implied here is that we're actually prone to forget his benefits quite often. And just even right here from the outside of the psalm, this, this little phrase here that we kind of read past, it should give us all pause right here. It should give us a chance to, um, uh, a chance to um, uh, reflect. Here's just a few before we go any further in this psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul. If someone were to examine your soul right now, would it concern them? Would it even concern you? Have you forgotten his benefits? And even just just today, do you find the glories of God out of reach from your affections right now? Does it just seem far away? In our moments of, of disorientation, in our moments of dryness and longing, we need to encourage our souls. We need to rehearse the saving mercies of God to ourselves. That's what your soul needs. So if you arrived here this morning and you found yourself just simply going through the motions today, if you found your your lips singing but your heart far from God, the prescription's right here. What you need is to preach to your soul on the mercy of God. So right from the get-go, Psalm 103 is teaching us how to know a more consistent, how to know a more steady gratefulness, a more steady thankfulness in our lives. And what is it that we're being encouraged to sing about here? Good question. Let's keep going. The psalmist lets us know, starting in verse 2 again. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. I mean, just 
Just look at these verbs we just read. Forgives, heals, redeems, crowns, satisfies. In our moments of disorientation, when we are questioning everything, we need to sing a song to ourselves that reminds us of who God is and what God does. And before we go any further, one thing we're going to see as we move throughout this psalm is that we're not given this false dichotomy between who God is and what God does. What we get are attributes of God put on display, and then they're matched with specific actions. Who he is and what he does are one and the same. In fact, God reveals who he is by what he does. We're not dealing with abstract or vague depictions of God's attributes here. No, the psalmist is saying that we know who God is because we've seen what God does. And this is why he can say, forget none of his benefits. Now, what are these benefits that he's talking about here? The ones we are prone to forget. What we just read. First, he forgives all your iniquity. This is talking about the guilt we all have before a holy God concerning our sin. Christians, today, no matter how extensive your sinfulness is, the legal liability we have, you have towards God, has been removed. Notice he says, all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. Now, we like to look at this as a promise that God's going to heal us of every sickness that we have. And while that will be true one day whenever Jesus returns, that's not what this verse is referring to. There's a Hebrew literary technique at play here. It's called parallelism. It means that both the top of verse 3 and the bottom of verse 3 are stating the same truth in two different ways, each with a slightly different perspective. What this is saying is that one of the benefits of God that we are prone to forget is not only that God will deal with the guilt of our sin, but he will also deal with the suffering and damage and effects that our sin causes. You see, sin always has two effects, a legal effect and a real-time actual effect. Legally, we are due punishment from God's eternal justice. In actual life, sin does damage our character, our souls, our relationships. So, so God is promising here when he says, heals all your diseases. He's promising here to heal us of the effects of sin over, over a, um, a lifetime. This third benefit he lists here, he redeems your life from the pit. What pit is he talking about here? It's about this deep, about this wide, and they'll lower all of us down into it one day whenever we die. This pit here is talking about the grave. So as Christians, what we have here is a confidence that when we are laid in the grave by the work of God, 
we will be ushered into eternal life with him. We will experience the resurrection from the dead. Let's keep going. Fourth, he crowns you with love and compassion. Now, now this word love here is the first of two times that we're going to encounter this Hebrew word in this passage, this word hesed. This is now the third time we run across this word um, in, in Psalms that I've been, I've been doing with you. We saw it in Psalm 84, Psalm 42, and now in Psalm 103. You know, as, as I've said before, this word is, is commonly translated as steadfast love or unfailing love. This, this word has said means, it means binding. It means guaranteed. It means covenant love. It's a love that's not subject to change. It doesn't come or go on the basis of our merits or performance. It's, it's this kind of love that is a crown for us, which means it's a status for us. It's a name for ourselves. It's an honor bestowed on us. We get our status and honor from God's steadfast covenant love, not from other people, not from accolades. We have been adopted into God's family, so now we find our identity in God. He crowns us with this name, this new identity. Fifth here, he satisfies you with good in such a way that your youth is renewed like an eagle's. He's simply saying here that, that as Christians, we have been given God's good gift of hope. In light of your new identity, in light of your assurance of the resurrection and your confidence that God is going to heal you into holiness, you have a full and hopeful future. Some of you need to hear that today. You need to remember that you do have hope. And you need to encourage your soul in such a way that as your youth is renewed, as you do encourage your soul this way. So just to recap, five verses. If you are a believer in here today, this is what the psalmist wants to remind you of. God has justified you, forgiving the guilt you have before a holy God. He's adopted you and given you a new status before him. He is sanctifying you by healing you of the effects of sin. He will resurrect you. He will redeem your life from the literal pit, the literal grave. And then he says, if you're consistently living in light of these benefits, you will naturally find a continued renewal of your strength, a continued renewal of your hope. Why in the world are we so quick to forget all that? Now remember, we said at the beginning that in these, these times of, of forgetfulness, these times of disorientation in our lives, we question everything. We wonder what God is really like. And now here, in verse 6, he begins to remind himself of just that very thing. And his appeal, both to himself and to those of us listening, 
is to remember one of the greatest pictures of redemption in the Old Testament, the um, uh, Exodus. Verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The psalmist is encouraging us to remember that God made known his ways to Moses and to Israel. This then lays the groundwork for the next few verses because the illusion here is meant to take us back to Sinai, back to Exodus 32 through 34, when after being delivered out of the slavery and bondage of Egypt, the Israelites quickly forgot the benefits of God and descended into idolatry. So Moses interceded for them and asked God to not completely just wipe them out. And God surprisingly answers his prayer. And in doing so, he, he lets Moses catch just a glimpse of who he is. Turn over to Exodus 34, uh, starting at, at verse 6. And kind of keep your finger in Psalm 103. We may, we're going to jump back here in a little bit, but turn over to Exodus 34, verse 6 with me. And letting Moses catch just a glimpse of who he is, the Lord tells Moses and us by default um, about himself. So listen to this from Exodus 34 here in verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Flip back over to Psalm 103. This Exodus passage is what verse 6 and 7 are asking people to remember, which then brings context to verse 8. Do you want to know what God is really like? Psalm 103 verse 8. Sound familiar? The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. I hope you hear the similarities. He's just recounting what God has already revealed about himself. So the psalmist is trying to help his people remember their identity in the midst of exile, and he helps them by reminding them of their past. God revealed himself to Moses. And the psalmist is remembering that. He's letting us remember that today. Because sometimes whenever life is hard, you have to go back to what you once knew about God. And maybe you don't see a lot of tangible evidence of blessing right now. Like the first hearers of this psalm, maybe you simply look around and you see evidence that you've lost everything. How am I supposed to remember your benefits when all I see is loss? So, so the psalmist is reminding us here to go back to what we once knew about God. Go back to what Moses said about him, to what all the prophets said about him. What is said over and over again about God in the Old Testament. What is God really like? God is merciful. God is gracious. God is slow to anger. God is full of steadfast love. If you're feeling the disorientation of this life, go back to what you once knew about God. 
of what has been true throughout the ages. He's gracious, merciful, patient, full of faithful love. As as we've already seen this summer, this this phrase about God is repeated multiple times, just, just in the Psalms alone. It's the thing that Israel keeps coming back to when they don't know what else to hang on to. They say, at least I know this is true about God. Let's keep going. Verse 9 and 10 then tell us more about what God is really like. Verse 9, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. One translation I read simply said, God won't always play the judge. I like that. God's resting face is in anger. If, if you're a believer in here today, you do not have to fear God's wrath. His anger is not as fundamental as his steadfast love. God's, God's anger is simply what happens when his goodness comes into contact with your rebellion. When his goodness comes into contact with your sin. That means God's anger towards his children is a relatively temporary thing. After he deals with our sin through his redemption, his anger ceases. As it says here, he will not keep it forever. But his steadfast love is permanent. Which brings us to one of the most astounding verses in the entire Old Testament, verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. As Christians, we don't have to fear the wrath of God, namely because he will not make us pay our debt, as it says here. The top of verse 10 says that God will not treat us as if we have sinned. He will treat us as if we have lived far better lives than what we really have. The bottom of verse 10 goes one step further and says that the debt we owe will not be required of us. Go back to Exodus 34 real quick. Now we said verse 8 is almost a word-for-word restatement of what God said to Moses on Mount Sinai in, in Exodus 34. But I want you to look at that next verse in that Exodus passage we just left, we just, we just read. Exodus 34, I'll read 6, then go on into 7. God goes on to say this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions for sin. Then listen to this, But who will by no means clear the guilty? So the psalmist here in 103 at first glance seems to be directly contradicting that statement. The psalmist says he will not make you pay even though you are guilty. But God says here in Exodus, he will by no means clear the guilty. So which is it? We will come back to this here in a minute, but let me just lay my cards out on this podium. This verse makes zero sense without an understanding of the cross of Christ. Unless we see that Jesus made full payment of sin on our behalf, we are going to be stuck here, 
having to choose either what Moses said, he will not clear the guilty, or what David said, he will clear the guilty. We're going to come back to that, but for now, let's keep pressing on through this psalm. Verse 11 through 14 now uses some imagery to remind us now of what God really thinks about us. What God really thinks about his children. Psalm 103, starting in verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. God's love towards his children, towards you, towards me, is as high as the heavens are above the earth. Now you and I have a way greater understanding of how high the heavens are above the earth than than even David did in this time. The psalmist is saying that God's love for us is infinite. God's mercy and forgiveness towards his children are as far as the east is from the west. The east will never hit the west. Again, it's infinite. What else does God think about me? Verse 13, this is a big one. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. I love this because the metaphor that God wants us to have at the front of our noodles whenever we think about relating to him is not the metaphor of an angry judge, but one of a compassionate parent. God's love for us is not simply the love of a king for his subjects, but it's the love of a father for his children. His knowledge, his care for us, it's unconditional, it's unlimited. And there's two parts to this parental love I kind of want to draw out for you in these two verses. These two verses seem, seem odd seem odd together, but I, I want to point this out to you because these two verses really do, really do um, uh, um, uh, belong together. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. A good parent knows their children and knows all of their weaknesses. They remember that they are dust. A good parent can see right into the heart of a child and can tell when they're lying, can tell whenever they're trying to, trying to, whenever they're being selfish or trying to hide their selfishness, whenever they're being impatient, whenever they're demonstrating just a simple lack of understanding. A good parent can see through all of that mess. In the same way, God knows exactly how shallow how weak and how impotent we all are. Yet, on the other hand, verse 13, a good parent has deep compassion for their children. Their weakness doesn't alienate them from your affections. Rather, the more silly, the more weak, the more needy a child is, the more a parent's heart is likely to be bound up with them. God loves us completely, not only in spite of his knowledge of our sin, 
but because of it. These two verses belong together. God has compassion on us because he knows how weak we are. Walter Brueggemann says it this way, Psalm 103 surrounds our dust with all of God's massive faithful power. We are a people in exile. We are a people without a home. As we've looked at previously, we are a people on a pilgrimage to Zion. And some of us right now are more weak than others. For some of you, your business isn't going well right now. Some of you are just simply out of work. Some of you are struggling with health issues. Psalm 103 isn't ignoring any of those realities. It's simply putting them in perspective for you as to reorient yourself around the eternality of God's steadfast love towards you. Listen to these next verses. As, starting in verse 15, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. You have two things being contrasted in these verses. The, the um, uh, ephemeral nature of man, of you and I, and the permanent nature of, of, of God's love. Our, our transience is contrasted with the permanence of God's covenant love for us. This verse says, when the wind of time has blown over all of our lives and we've all fled this earth, the steadfast love that sustained the Israelites in Moses' day, that sustained believers in David's day, that sustains us today, it will still be here. It will be here for our children. It will be here for our children's children. But lest you think this is just some future blessing, this is also a help for us right now. Because the psalmist is telling us here, I, I know life may be tough for you now, but it's not going to last. It's not forever. In fact, this, this life is a blink compared to eternity. As he's already told us, one day there's going to be resurrection. One day there's going to be new creation. One day death itself will be swallowed up in victory and every tear will be wiped away and all things will be made new. So yeah, the next season of your life may be tough. It may be the hardest 20, 30, 40 years of the next trillion plus years of eternity. This is what the psalmist is reminding us of here. The good, it's not going to last forever. The bad, it's not going to last forever. What is going to last forever? The steadfast love of the Lord is forever to those who fear him. And finally, in these last verses, we are given a doxology, which is just simply a short expression of praise to God. Bless the Lord, O you his angels. 
you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works and all places of his dominion. Finally, bless the Lord, O my soul. The psalm ends the same way it began. All of our remembering the benefits of God enable us to be in sync with the, with the cosmic praise on display here. And here in these verses, notice, God is blessed both from our inmost being, bless the Lord, O my soul, and God is also blessed from the uttermost of all being. God's love for his people, for us, is immeasurable. God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, full of steadfast love, compassionate. His forgiveness is limitless and unconditional. He heals us, redeems us, crowns us with honor, satisfies us. We have his tender care, not in spite of our weakness, but because of it. God knows us completely, yet cares for us perfectly. Yet, as I alluded to earlier, none of this makes any sense without Jesus. How can a holy God who says, I will by no means clear the guilty in Exodus, go on to do that very thing? How can he say in this psalm, I won't make you pay your debt? Who's going to pay the debt then? Turn with me over to Romans 3, verse 25. You want to know how God does forgive us? How God does heal us? How he does redeem us and adopt us? It's only through Jesus. Romans 3, starting in verse 25, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation or as a a sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over, brackets, our former sins. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross satisfied God's wrath. God didn't merely dismiss the guilty charges against you and I. No, his righteous demands were met in Jesus' death. So now his holiness isn't compromised when he forgives us, when he forgives sinners like me, sinners like you. In his love, God sent his son who again offered himself willingly to satisfy his anger against sin. You should marvel at this. This should lead you to worship. This should cause your heart to leap inside you in thankfulness and gratefulness for what he's done for you. God has provided a way to rescue guilty sinners that doesn't compromise his justice and his holiness. He has provided a way through Jesus. And if you know this Jesus today, 
His Spirit resides in you, continuing to heal you of the effects of sin. His Spirit in you testifies to the fact that even though your body will one day fade like the grass, you have hope that you will experience a glorious resurrection into new life with Jesus. You have His righteousness. You're no longer slaves to sin, but are adopted as sons and daughters into God's family. Christians, if you're disoriented from, if you're disoriented today from life, if you have doubts, if you have questions, look back at the greatest work of God. You have something so much greater than the Exodus. You have a deliverer who is mightier than Moses. You were in a situation far more perilous than being under enslavement to Pharaoh. You have a God who has sent his only son to free you from your slavery to sin. A slaver who has come to ransom you from all your sin and to lead you into a great salvation. Christian, you know the living God. You get to enjoy relationship with this living God now. And you'll get to enjoy relationship with this living God for all of eternity. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for you. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove your transgressions from you. You know steadfast love instead of anger. You know forgiveness rather than enslavement. And if you don't know Christ today, if you don't know this God, guess what? This psalm is also an invitation for you. The invitation is extended to you today as well to bless the Lord. God's grace, His mercy, His patience, His faithful love is available for you. God is able to forgive your sins. Why? Because this is what God does, this is who God is. Today he asks you to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. God saves sinners. He has compassion for you today. His word will say a little bit later in Romans, while you were still weak, while we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were weak, while we were still sinners, God had compassion on us and saved us through the work of his son on the cross. He can save you today as well. Would you stand with me today? Before we, we come to this table this morning, I want us to take some time to encourage our own souls. We're going to take some time to confess our sins.
before God. So if you would, just close your eyes with me today. Just take some time just to pray where you're at. Take some time to just encourage your own souls. Remember who he is today. Remember what he's done for you today. Encourage your souls. Lift your eyes up from from their current circumstances, however real they are, however devastating they are right now, however difficult they are. Ask God to renew your strength today. To remember the eternal hope you have in Him. Bless Him. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord whose steadfast love is from forever ago to forever from now. Let's sing this old chorus together. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy Let's lift up that song. Encourage yourselves. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy. Now let's just sing tenderly to the God who looks on us with tenderness. Let's sing that again. Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy. If you're serving communion, you can come forward now and you can get ready. We have a very real opportunity now to remember and to respond to what God has done for us in Christ. We have another opportunity to remember his body broken on the cross so that our debt to sin would be completely paid for. Another opportunity to remember his blood shed for us so that we now have right standing before God. Our sins have been forgiven. Remember him today. Be amazed at his grace. In this moment, don't let sin preoccupy your soul with lesser glories. Remember his glories, his affection towards you. Remember his son broken for you. Take a moment to prepare yourself if you need to. Pray. Grab someone else and pray. Use some of those prayers on the back of your bulletin if you don't know what to pray. And when you're ready, come forward and remember. You've been listening to a message by Shelby Murphy given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.